Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Happy New Year. I think it's still OK to say that in early February. And welcome to Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction's official podcast. I'm Razia Iqbal. The Bailey Gifford Prize celebrates the very best in nonfiction writing, from history and politics to nature and the arts. We're excited to be back for another year of fascinating debate and discussion. And as always, we are immensely grateful to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous sponsorship, which makes this podcast possible. Our first episode of 2024 is dedicated to politics and democracy, because thanks to an alignment of calendars, 2024 is setting a record for the greatest number of people living in countries that will or already have held national elections, more than 4 billion people. That's just over half of humanity. Among those countries that will vote are the UK, the US, India, and countries in the European Union, which will elect the bloc's next parliament. So we wanted to convene a conversation about the challenges of thinking about and, of course, writing about 21st century elections. A big election year, more people voting in 2024 then than in any previous year, but this great march to the ballot box doesn't necessarily mean an explosion of democracy because we know there is more to democracy than voting. So lots to thrash out in the conversation. We're delighted to be joined by writer, journalist and former Bailey Gifford Prize judge, Samant Subramanian, whose works include This Divided Island, stories from the Sri Lankan War, and Following Fish, Travels Around the Indian Coast. We're also joined by Stephen Bush, associate editor and columnist at the Financial Times newspaper, who was also a prize judge in 2018. Welcome to you both and thanks so much for joining us today. Let's start, first of all, with getting just a reflection from both of you about the kind of the aligning of this calendar and the significance that so many people are going to be focused on voting this year. Is it is it something that we feel now in the 21st century that matters to the people who are taking part or does it tend to matter much more to the commentariat? Stephen Bush, let's start with you. Um, so I think it actually does matter quite a lot to the people um, taking part, not least because, I mean, so in in some of these elections, the the very fact that other people are watching will be a factor, right? That's one of the things that, um, you know, Modi has very successfully done in the past is treat his internal opponents when they complain about democratic backsliding, et cetera, et cetera, as, um, you know, voices of external opponents and people watching overseas. And because, of course, one of these elections happens is happening in the world's most powerful and important democracy, it, you know, in many ways, um, in terms of the prosperity of the average person in the United Kingdom, the average person in, in the in the EU, um, whether or not Joe Biden defeats Donald Trump is a much more consequential election than whether or not, um, you know, you know what, what form of majority you get in the European Parliament or whether or not Keir Starmer defeats um, Rishi Sunak. And, and in, I mean, in an odd way, um, that's kind of always been the case as long as the global superpower has been a democracy. You know, Kenneth Kaunda, um, the well, a former president of uh, of Zambia, but at the time uh, a leading member of their independence movement, you know, 
talked about watching results from the 1945 general election in the UK and cheering every gain as if it had been for the UNIP, the Independence Party, because they believed that the Labour government would speed along the course, the cause of, 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 of independence. So I, I think it, it isn't just obviously it's very exciting to commentate such as myself, but it, it is also a reflection of the fact that these elections have echoes well beyond their own shores. Samantha, is that something that you reflect on when you observe, say, the United States? Uh, obviously, a really big year this year, but 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 also India. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I often jokingly say every four years, I say to them, the results of the U.S. election matter so much to the rest of us, influence the rest of our lives so much outside the U.S. that we should get like half a vote in deciding who becomes president of the United States. Um, it's a joke, of course, but I mean. There's, there's other things also that have become more and more interesting uh, over the last decade, maybe. And that is the, the uniformity of the ways in which elections are run across the country, across the world. And so if you, if you te- go back to, for example, the question of a social media platform like Meta or Facebook, uh, the ways in which parties use social media, use the power of information and misinformation, all of that is starting to align whether you're in a developing country or a first world country. Um, and the, very often the people running these campaigns across these countries are the same. There are consulting firms that go out from territory to territory to sell their services to make sure that these social media campaigns are successful. So suddenly you have a kind of uniformity in the electoral process as well that you can discern in countries as varied as the United States and India. It is really interesting. At last semester, I teach at Princeton University, um, and and last semester I was teaching a course on disinformation and misinformation, and this semester I'm teaching a course on democracy. So it sort of feels to me that these things are so bound up with w- one another, and 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 in in this country, in in at the moment, there does seem to be a real sense of fear on the part of those people who think that uh, Trump poses a great threat to uh, Biden in November uh, this year. But also there is a sense that there might be malign forces, as we have seen in the past, intervening. I mean, Stephen, how much how much of this is an issue overall when it comes to the way political culture works now? I think it's quite a big issue. I think partly because what we have seen over the past decade and will continue to see over the next is the erosion and in some countries the near total destruction of a local media scene right um an election yeah elections in which many many more people follow the news on global social media platforms or they subscribe to global newspapers you know such as ourselves at the ft bloomberg new york times etc etc and given that and the decline of things like TV and public meetings, the ability of misinformation and outright disinformation to spread very freely on social media platforms, the most important ones, of course, being Facebook and, and WhatsApp, because they're the ones everyone uses, I think has become more important to how uh, people feel about election outcomes. Because, of course, as you say, one of the things, you know, yes, one part of, of, of democracy is elections taking place, but another part is losers accepting those results and feeling that the contest is fair and of course in many of the elections uh that we'll see this year 
won't be that fair. But in ones where it is, this rise of disinformation online is one of the reasons why people wrongly believe, for example, that that Donald Trump did not lose the 2020 presidential election. In India, Samant, let's turn to India. You know, the ruling BJP is, by the way, the world's biggest political party with more than 180 million members. And Narendra Modi has dominated the country and changed it, I think, profoundly over uh, the the two terms that he has been prime minister. I just wonder what you think about the the level of participation in a country that has shifted so much. I mean, the people who criticize Modi will talk about how India is veering away from its secular constitution, that uh, minorities, the largest, of course, being Muslims in India, are being discriminated against, that there is this kind of tenor and tone of the country that has moved away from being a secular country to one that is a Hindu nationalist country. I mean, I, I wonder about participation in that context, how much people feel that they genuinely have a voice. Until now, at least, there haven't been extremely serious claims or allegations of actual electoral malpractice, which is something to be thankful for. Although, who knows how long that will continue. I do think people feel fairly represented at the ballot box. But if we go beyond, beyond the ballot box itself, beyond voting day to sort of a deeper engagement with politics, there's an odd thing that's happened, which is one of Modi's successes... And you could say the same thing about Donald Trump and actually any populist leader around the world. But one of Modi's successes has been to to sort of make politics a cultural thing. And that means that it extends beyond voting day into every single day, every single aspect of your life. It pervades your social media. It informs dinner table conversations when you meet family. It informs which friends you keep and which friends you don't. It informs how religious you look on the outside and how religious you feel on the inside. I mean, so all of this has really been perhaps a single most remarkable success. So to that extent, I think political engagement is really cultural engagement in India today. And if, if you want to measure that, I've never seen it or now I've never experienced it be as deep and as widespread as it is today. Whether that's for the better or not is, is another matter altogether. But I think people are genuinely engaged. And I do think people think about this stuff all the time, which is not necessarily a great thing. Let's just stay with you for a moment about the kind of fairness aspect of an election in the context of the domination of the kind of media that we see in India, that that so much of independent voices have been sidelined, if not silenced, some would argue. The thing that's happening is that while voting day itself may be relatively free and fair, uh, the real work goes on in the five years between elections. And so that involves silencing your critics, that involves subverting the judicial process, the judiciary, that involves trying to put opposition uh, political parties and their leaders on the back foot, or sometimes putting them into prison, uh, that involves shutting down media voices that disagree with you or harassing journalists. So all of this work is actually happening uh, in the five years leading up to the election itself, so that by the time the election rolls around, the BJP can be quite sure that they've laid the ground for the kind of thing they do really well, which is to go out there and win elections. And a lot of these wins are actually happening on the back of the work of the last five years. Stephen Bush, I I wonder when you observe what's happening in the United States, it, it occurs to me that 
the the kind of the grip that Donald Trump has on the Republican Party is, is curious for many many reasons. But when I when I look at how much he has not just changed the political discourse, but there is very little reflection on the fact that he, apart from 2016, has not won elections for the GOP. You know, the 2018 midterms, he didn't do so well. 2020, of course, he lost, though he disputes it and continues to, and many millions in the country uh, support him in that, um, in that lie. And and in some ways, it's important to say that it is a lie. Um, and, and, and then again in 2022, 20, 20, the, the candidates that he backed did not do as well. The red wave didn't happen. And yet the grip he has on the party and the language that he uses to talk about being a winner is still so entrenched. Yeah, it is really fascinating for precisely as you lay out, right, that, that even in 2016 when he um, won in the Electoral College, um, we have fairly robust polling evidence and indeed fairly robust actual electoral evidence in when you look at how Republicans as a whole did in that election that Donald Trump is a net negative to the Republican Party. Um, and although, of course, they got the very substantial victory of control of the Supreme Court and through that abortion law and a bunch of other consequential changes to American public policy, Considering he did start with control of all three branches of government, it was not a very consequential presidency. And many of its quite few achievements, like Operation Warp Speed, were quite centrist stuff, right? Um, and yet, the Republican Party has been completely unable to shake him off. Uh, billions and billions of pounds have been spent by conservative donors to try. Um, and... Um, you know, they're kind of left either sort of publicly going, well, at least he's better than Biden, and in some cases privately saying, well, hopefully a second defeat will will shake it off, or they're flirting with various third party outcomes. But yeah, the, the, I think the thing we know we don't yet know is what will happen to the Republican Party when Donald Trump either dies or becomes too physically, um, or becomes simply unwilling, I suppose, to keep running for office. Will it revert back to something different? Will it revert to the kind of Trump but more competent than DeSantis was trying and failing to sell? Uh, but the, yeah, the, the really interesting thing is the the transformation he's wrought on the GOP and then the fact that this is not an electorally lucrative transformation hasn't yet caused the party to try and move on, which is often usually what happens, of course, when a party loses an election. It goes, this sucks, let's try something else. I wonder, someone, when you look at what's happening in the United States, what what your reflections are in in that context. You know, this idea that um, that that the political culture is being led by the the language that Trump uses, and how important that that feels in terms of how it filters down to to way the way in which people engage. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the nature of the political discourse that has changed, and. It's, you know, we could sort of do a PhD on whether Trump was the cause of it or a symptom of it or indeed an outcome of it, um, whether it changed earlier or whether the U.S. and indeed other countries were primed to have their discourse discourse shifted in this particular way. Um, you know, we talk very, very commonly these days about the polarization of the polity, 
um, in all these countries that we're talking about today. Um, and the shifting of the discourse is sort of one instance of it. And of course, there is there are forces on the right wing that are eager to capitalize on it. And Trump uh, is the loudest person on the right wing who does that, but is not the only one. I mean, we see entire media networks like Fox News uh, resorting to the same kind of exploitation of this of this discourse and the divide. And so, and once that's set in, I mean, the depressing or bleak thing about it is it it isn't possible necessarily to see how we can roll it back, how the genie goes back into the bottle. And I think this about India all the time, but of course I think it about the United States, is that once you've sort of let this toxin out, and this is, um, and this is the result of it, this divided polity, um, what makes people come together again? What sort of brings a certain measure of civility and thoughtfulness back to political discourse? And the answer is not obvious to any of us right now, I think. In that context, the fact that the answer may not be obvious, I, I wonder how, given how high the stakes are in many countries this year, how how is it possible for people like yourselves to keep your eye on the most important thing when you're writing and thinking about um, these high stakes? I mean, Stephen Bush, how, you know, is it difficult or challenging to to keep a sense of perspective and proportion when 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 what you're seeing is uh, just these kind of stark situations of polarization and 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 it's really important that you try and kind of keep some modicum of proportion here yeah i think it is difficult i mean i think it's difficult for two reasons i think there's the personal vanity then like many journalists you desperately want to be talking about the thing which is driving the most conversation and there are really important elections that don't involve um donald trump at the yeah the, in in this over the course of this year but that's all we kind of want oh i want to be on that one because that's the one that loads of our readers will be talking about um but i think also the the challenge is is that the ideal election i would say is one in which broadly speaking both sides agree on what the problems are they might have very radically different solutions and approaches but they are clearly talking about a shared reality. It's not one in which you have to go, okay, well, how do we cover the fact that there is a conspiracy about Taylor Swift that has made it all the way into Fox News and into, you know, formerly respectful mainstream parts of American conservative thought. And there is, I think, a challenge between how do you cover that in a way where you correctly communicate that this is a mad theory, it is, an, is in of itself troubling that... Um, thought leaders, as it were, on the American right are talking about it, but you don't continually editorialise or blur the line between comment and news. And that is a is a real challenge. I think, you know, a variety of media outlets are in different ways trying to explore how you do that while maintaining the important fundamentals of journalism. I'm really interested in the kind of much broader... Uh, nature of democracy. And I'm thinking now about the kind of protests and the demonstrations that have uh, been happening in response to the the war in, uh, in the Middle East between uh, Israel and uh, Hamas in Gaza. I, I wonder, Saman, if, if you think about the, the, whether what we're seeing is going to result in a kind of 
a, a shift or has already resulted in a shift in terms of the way in which the the, the global south is responding to uh, the 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 global north and the developed countries and their attitude to the the war in the Middle East. I mean, is that something that feeds into the the conventional stuff that we think about when we think about democracy, which is basically elections and people voting at the ballot box? That's a that's a big complicated question. I mean, I think the protests themselves are remarkable um, because like other protests before, and I'm thinking in particular of the climate protests over the last few years, I think these protests occur and they occur at such scale because there's a distinct feeling that elected governments aren't really doing the thing they're supposed to be doing, which is to heed what their public wants and to act on it as policy. And I think the reason that these protests often manifest with such anger and desperation is because um, all over the world, I think governments have moved away from that, or at least there is a feeling that governments aren't doing that. And the Middle East, um, pro the protests about the war in the Middle East are actually off a piece with the climate protests in another way, which is that increasingly there is a sentiment in developing economies that... Western societies and Western governments don't often live up to the ideals that they preach or sometimes inflict upon developing countries. Um, this is, of course, this is nothing new. All of us know this as we um, read history. I mean, there's always sort of duplicity and self-interest at play here. Um, but increasingly, the stakes are getting so much bigger. And, and uh, countries like India, for example, I mean, India is a perfect example of how to play um, the self-interest game knowing that the U.S. or other Western democracies can be called out for the same thing. So to give you one example, um, when the war in Ukraine broke out, there was enormous pressure upon India to start boycotting Russian oil and gas imports. Uh, but what India actually did is double down on those imports because Russian oil and gas was getting cheap, and so they could afford more of it, and it really helps the cause of um, a developing economy to be able to buy cheap energy. And behind the scenes in negotiations with the U.S., the Indian government was able to impress on the U.S. the fact that its own self-interest was at play here. And it was as important or as vital to it as the U.S.'s own self-interest. So I think there's, I, and again, with the Middle East, uh, we see the fact that the country that took Israel to the International Court of, Court of Justice was South Africa. It was backed by other Latin American countries. Uh, these are all countries that were in what used to form, formally be called the third world. And I think even that move at the international stage is evidence of the fact that governments in these countries think the US or the UK or European countries don't walk the walk, even though they talk the talk. Stephen Bush, on the issue of kind of a single um, single issue, a kind of campaigning thing that 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 provokes people to go out and and demonstrate in the in the streets. It, it's quite clear that there is there is passion. There's kind of collective um, a collective sense of, of of feeling that people want to have their their politician or their political leaders listen to them. I, I just wonder how it works the other way around. I mean, you understand. Uh, political culture, particularly in the UK. I mean, it, it needs, politicians need 
not necessarily single messaging, but they need really powerful messaging, don't they, when they start campaigning? And and we've seen with Rishi Sunak these kind of five goals that he continues to to talk about. Doesn't matter what questions he's asked, he just goes back to those five points that he says that that they're going to try and achieve. I, how how difficult is that to to kind of report on when 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 you get very very slick trained politicians who are focusing on the message only well to be uncharitable at the moment it helps and in different ways neither of the major political parties in the uk are led by particularly natural politicians um but <laughs> but i think i think so the, the really interesting thing about the 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 intensification of these repeated messages regardless of what the question is is and it is it is in part a reaction to how we in the media have changed and indeed how consumption habits have changed, right? Then then the, one of the reasons why they know they have to communicate in these very controlled, very repetitive ways is that they know they are mostly just being heard by absolutely nobody. Um, you know, in 1992, which was an election the Labour Party thought they'd win and famously lost, which is therefore very much in the air in British politics at the moment um, because... We once again have these very large leads for the Labour Party and people go, oh, well, could it happen again? Um, in 1992, there was for an entire week a political argument that dominated the airwaves over one of Labour's party political broadcasts, these free guaranteed slots that parties get on broadcast media um, in which they can go, look, here's our message. Um, now, you know, my day job is British polit covering British politics and I couldn't tell you what the message of any of the big parties' last um, party political broadcasts were off the top of my head. So I think, in an odd way, the thing I always know is that the readers who are most, you know, the, the readers who are most loyal, who we want to kind of keep with us, are the ones who um, will go, okay, but I've heard that already. What's the new story? Um, so for us, I don't feel so much that there's a challenge to to not just repeat these messages, but I do think that sometimes what's happened quite frequently in UK elections of late is that um, the sort of official campaign as covered by political journalists becomes obsessed with small items of detail, um, very intricate political rows that are perhaps very enjoyable for readers of business newspapers, specialist magazines, and then maybe one or two of the broadsheets. And then the vast majority of people in the country are sort of left a bit cold by it. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking back to the 2015 TV debates where the most Googled thing afterwards was what is austerity this word which had from the perspective of people covering politics defined British political British political debates for five years and so I think um in some ways the challenge for us is how we live in the world we've partly created yeah that's a really really um interesting and very good point I mean I I, I wonder given everything that both of you have said let's let's start with you uh Samant. I mean do you feel optimistic about democracy do you feel that this year which is going to see so many people going to the ballot box and engaging or, or perhaps lots of people deciding that they're going to be apathetic I mean do you feel optimistic about the idea of democracy I feel pessimistic about the health of democracy I can say that um, and I don't necessarily mean that voting day election day goes peacefully um, there's a free and fair election on the day itself I mean the kinds of things that contribute to a country being a democracy between elections, the institutions, civil society, I mean, the 
health of these things has corroded across the board, across the world. And I don't think we're going to recover that um, in one election cycle. I don't think we're going to recover that at the end of the election year. And I think that's something that that profoundly depresses me sometimes. Um, and of course, I'm looking with anxious eyes at a number of elections around the world, hoping that they don't go the way I fear they will. Well, let's hear some of your predictions then. In India, at least, the country I know best from a political standpoint, uh, it looks very much as if the BJP will return to power. Um, the only question is sort of how many seats they come back with, what kind of majority they get. Uh, but I think all the groundwork they've done over the last five years, the results of recent state elections, the results of polls and surveys, the health of the opposition, uh, all of this makes me uh, sort of quite certain of what the result is going to be. Uh, and in the U.S., as you observe it? You know, I mean, it's 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 been a while since I traveled there, and I think um, it, it's going to be much tighter than in India, certainly. Uh, it looks like the Democrats themselves are worried about this, and I think uh, many people, even three or four or five weeks ago, were concluding um, that Trump would be the Republican nominee, and that seems to be how it's going to pan out. And so, in a Trump versus Biden fight, with Biden having lost a certain measure of the liberal vote over his stance on Israel and Gaza, um, I do, you know, again, it's it's going to be much closer than I would like it to be. Stephen, be before I get you to, to to look at some predictions, I mean, I I, I wonder about the what, the extent to which you think people actually understand, say, for example, in the United States, that the election will be decided on the way in which voters in five or six swing states will um, cast their votes. And and that, for many people observing it, doesn't feel particularly democratic. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing which I always find a bit funny when uh, people talk about the lessons that a uh, party in another country can take from the last U.S. political election, right, in the or indeed any U.S. political election, because they have this system that, well, actually, quite literally, in the founding documents, it's not meant to be fair, right? It's it is meant to um, hold back certain features we would now regard as essential to a democracy. It it does have a yeah, what I would describe as an, an undemocratic, and also at the moment, as it happens, and an anti-the-democratic party um, tilt, although in, that may change in the in the future, as indeed in the past it has helped the, the Democratic Party and hurt the Republican Party. Um, but it, it goes back to the sort of strangeness of this year, then yes, elections do matter, uh, and they are part of a democratic health check, but if you are a country like the United States where, broadly speaking, you know, you have these very long lines to vote as a way of suppressing one side's voters. You have uh, an electoral system which is insidiocratic, to put it mildly. Um, are you a proper democracy? I, I mean, I think if you were to try and introduce the Electoral College in France's presidential election, I was about to say they would write, obviously they write about quite a lot of things. Um, but, you know, they would write even more than they did about pension changes, uh, and rightly so. And so it is... It is a slightly strange feature, and I think you're right, and people don't fully understand 
how odd it is, you know, not least because people talk about, oh, well, the median American is here, so why doesn't Biden say this? And you can tell them they haven't quite realised that the median American who matters in these elections is a median American in a handful of states who, um, for a variety of reasons, is not quite representative of the average American. Are you pessimistic about the health of democracy in the way that Samanth just outlined? Yes, I mean, history teaches us that democracy is very fragile, right? It's the only system of government which has to permit the, th the forces that would destroy it some level of purchase in the public sphere, right? Which means that at any given point, it's only ever one bad day, one bad candidate, one ill-chosen um, front page of the New York Times, etc., etc., away from disaster. Um, and the, I think we clearly are at a moment in global history when those vulnerabilities are particularly exposed because across a large number of countries, France obviously, well, France does have elections this year in the European Parliament, but it's significant elections aren't this year. Um, but, you know, France is another example, one where you have a choice between um, one candidate who, whatever you may think of, whoever emerges as Macron's successor as the standard bearer of, of that bit of politics, will be democratic versus um, Le Pen and Raleigh, who are very much not democratic. And, and so, yeah, I, I do feel uh, particularly worried and aware of democracy's fragility at the moment. Let's get some predictions from you just to end, though. What what do you think is going to happen, given everything that you said about um, about the UK and 1992 and, and, and maybe the United States, too? So I am going to give a very uh, spotty answer to this one, which is I think that if you look at the underlying fundamentals in the United Kingdom, you know, the condition of uh, its economy, the pressures on public services, the large numbers of people sleeping rough, these are all indicators that, would suggest we're going to have a change of government. So I think that is likely. Um, and to look to the US for a moment, one of the reasons why I'm more Panglossian either than I think everyone else on the FT editorial board and perhaps even more worryingly, all of my family in the States think I'm wildly over-optimistic here. I think if you look at the condition of the American economy and you look at the way the American consumer is behaving and you look at how the Republican Party has performed in actual elections, uh, you know, so in in special elections and in the midterms, I think that Joe Biden will just about hold off Donald Trump. But when you have a candidate like Donald Trump, who's, you know, obviously particularly for all of us in Europe, um, whose victory would be consequential and in, not in a good way, even before you get to all of the stuff about, you know, what he said about the last election... Um, it's a bit. It is a bit scary to think. Oh well, Joe Biden will probably have enough because you'd hope he would win that contest by loads. But I think Joe Biden will have enough to see off Donald Trump this time. Stephen Bush, Samanth Subramanian, thank you both very much indeed. Thanks for making the time to talk to us today. And um, we'd like once again to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its invaluable support for this podcast. Now, to find out more about the Bailey Gifford Prize, you can. Visit the website or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at BG Prize. Tune in next time to hear more from the world of literary nonfiction. Bye-bye for now. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.